You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. As we continue our study of the Gospel of John, we're looking at it through this whole year. And in particular, in chapter 13, where we started last week, we are re-engaging with Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover feast together. And at that meal, Jesus pauses and he gets up from his position at the table. He puts a towel around his waist and he goes to each of the disciples and washes their feet. A job, by the way, that's relegated for a slave, but Jesus does it to show great humility and to show great love. We pick back up in chapter 13 at verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. All right, so let's take a moment to look at these two terms, teacher and Lord. Now, teacher back then is basically the same as teacher today. It's one who is the instructor. And many of you in this room are teachers or retired teachers, everywhere from preschool through university level. Also in this room are teachers of Sunday school classes and Bible study groups. And in every case, we want to honor your commitment, your calling, your godly influence, that you have that influence over others. And thank you for using it in such a way. Jesus was called a teacher. Now, in, uh, in formalized Hebrew terms, that's a rabbi. And how it w- would work back then is that you don't pick a school, you pick a teacher. And if that teacher accepted you, you say, hey, I, I would love to study under you. If that teacher then accepted you, you would come in sit at their teaching, soak it all in. Well, in the case with the disciples, it wasn't they who chose Jesus. Jesus chose them. Jesus selected them to have a relationship with. Jesus chose them. Jesus wanted them. Jesus wanted to guide, teach, lead them. Do you know that he still does that? If you belong to Jesus... It's because he chose you to be in a relationship with him. He chose you. He wants you. He wants to teach and lead you. The other title is Lord. And that means one in supreme position, the ultimate in authority, the equivalent of master, one who rules over everything and everyone. And we read here that Jesus accepted both titles and he said, that is what I am. He goes on. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example, an example in humility, that you should do what I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no Servant is greater than his master, 
for no messenger is greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So we continue this important night in the life of Jesus and really the life of the disciples as well. We're hearing it from the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke all record events of this night. Their main focus, those other three Gospels, their main focus of that night is the Last Supper. Obviously, they've had a meal together here by John's description. But John doesn't give us the detail the other three do of how Jesus takes the bread and the cup and gives new meaning and significance to it as if it's his body, his blood. But what John does is share some very important things that not only did the disciples need to hear, but you and I on that night. So Jesus and his disciples are gathered around a table. Really, it's probably a set of tables. It's not like da Vinci's, you know, they're all just in line. It's probably a set of tables that are kind of U-shaped, maybe like a squared off U. There's Jesus and the 12 others celebrating a Passover meal. While in that position, Jesus explains some things of what he's going to have to do and what they need to learn before he leaves this place by means of crucifixion and the resurrection and eventual ascension back into the heavenly kingdom. Now, he has just washed their feet, a demonstration of great, humble service. But now, he wants to prepare them for what is about to come. He continues, he says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Jesus looks around the table. He looks at those 12. And he says, I know who I've chosen. I know you men. You're not a mystery to me. I know what's in your hearts and minds. But listen to me. There is a scripture that is being fulfilled tonight. And he quotes Psalm 41 verse 9 in which King David said this. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. My own friend, someone sitting at this table with whom I share bread, he is going to turn on me in unexpected and violent ways. Jesus is going to declare this a little more plainly in a few verses, but they got it. The disciples got the message that night that someone at that table was going to betray Jesus. There was a traitor in the room. There was someone who was playing both sides. There was a double agent, a spy, if you will. That's what he meant by referencing Psalm 41.9. Just as happened in David's lifetime, someone at that table with Jesus was going to betray him. Now in verse 20, Jesus says something that appears to be a throwaway line. Uh, We really pay much attention to it. However, 
Here's what he's telling them in verse 20. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. What he's saying is I still have sending to do. Hey, Mr. Trader at my table, you're not going to win. I still have sending to do. I've got to send people out. It's not over. Not by a long shot. But then notice what he says in verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss of, to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Okay, the disciple whom Jesus loved, well, which one is that? There's 12 guys around the table. He loved them all, didn't he? Well, we understand this is John's way of describing himself. When he speaks of himself in his own gospel, some five times he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, at first, we might think that's pretty arrogant of John. <laughs> Who do you think you are? I mean, it'd be like saying, well, every mother's favorite child is named Paul. <laughs> Paul said amen. <laughs> and there's another Paul that said it. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> but friends, there's something more going on in John using this phrase. That when John thinks about himself and he identifies himself, how does he describe himself? Hi, I'm the one that Jesus loves. Now, there may be a part of us that we would want to take John aside and say, hey, okay, John, do you understand that Jesus loves everyone? And John would say, yeah, I, I know that. But I also know he loves me. That's how I identify myself, John would say. You know, one of the bigger issues in our culture today is everyone is screaming out the question, will you please tell me who I am? Who am I? What's my identity? Am I young or old? Am I a man or a woman? That used to not be a hard question to answer. But the focus is on identity. So we tend to identify ourselves instead in our culture by what we do or, or the things we like or what products we buy. Friends, let me tell you this. Jesus Christ has a message for our culture, this generation today. It's start your identity in me. That's what Jesus would say. Start finding your identity in my love. Every one of us should have this deep in our hearts. First and foremost, you want to know who I am? I'm the one whom Jesus loves. I'm like the Apostle John. Again, someone could say, do you understand that he loves all people? I know, but he loves me. This is the foundation of who I am. I'm not even saying that's the only thing about me, but I'm saying that's where it starts. And if it doesn't begin there, no wonder we have so much identity confusion. No wonder we don't know who we are. John knew who he was. He knew how to find his identity 
in his relationship with Jesus, in the love that Jesus pours out on him. And God wants that for you. That's the answer for our culture today as well. So Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples were at a loss. John was one of those reclining next to Jesus. And here's how the story continues. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, in other words, motioned to John and asked, and said, hey, ask him which one he means. Well, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Someone is going to betray me. Jesus, what are you talking about? We know each other. Jesus, we've lived with each other for three years. We know all about our own weird and disgusting habits. We know. Hey, we know Peter is the guy who doesn't have a filter on his mouth and he fishes evidently in underwear. You'll see that in chapter 21. We know that Matthew used to work for the Roman government as a tax collector. We know each other. If there were a traitor among us, they would have flunked out a long time ago. Jesus, we're with you to the end. They were at a loss by this statement of Jesus, so much so that they wondered, Jesus, do you mean me? Accidentally, not on purpose, Maybe there's something I'm going to do that looks like I'm betraying you. You know, even Judas asked that question. In Matthew's gospel, who's depicting the events of this night, in chapter 26, he tells us that every one of the disciples, all 12, looked at Jesus and said, Lord, is it I? Do you mean me? Am I the one about to betray you? This tells us two very important things. Number one, Judas was not detected in his traitorous work. Nobody thought first off, okay, Jesus' statement, somebody in here is going to betray me. Oh, yeah, we know exactly who it is. They're all going to look at and point at Judas. I knew it. I knew he was the one sneaky Judas. I mean, look, his name is Judas. What kid is named Judas? No one suspected it. No one thought it. And number two, I want you to notice there's something very good in the hearts of the disciples when they question, is it I? And I hope that some of that goodness is in us as well. What do I mean by that? That when we read the Bible and it describes sin in our lives that God has to deal with, that it's like putting ourselves on notice that we need to search our hearts. Is there something that I have done to cause a divided loyalty to Jesus Christ? We all have. We're all sinners. Do you know that? Have you acknowledged that? Have you brought it before the Lord Jesus and asked him to deal with it? Because what happens when he does? First John 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, if we admit it, if we acknowledge it, if we bring it before the Lord Jesus, he is faithful and just and will 
forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all wrongdoing. Do you realize you need to do this? This is for you. You see, no one else can bring your sins before the Lord on your behalf. You've got to own them. So this text is for you. Unless you're one who says, man, I'm so glad my wife's here to hear this. Or, or maybe the person who's not here. You're thinking, man, I wish they were here. They really need to hear this. Isn't it funny how we assign that to everyone else to ask? But I need to ask, is it I? The disciples asked that question. But Simon Peter wants to know more. Look at verse 24 again. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple. He motioned to John and said, ask him which one he means. So Peter couldn't discreetly ask Jesus, so he got John to ask Jesus. Then verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, John asked him, Lord, who is it? You see, historically and traditionally in a formal setting such as this meal, the men would have all been reclining toward the table, basically on their elbow, so that you could reach out with your right hand and get the food that's in front of you. So if they're all lined up around a U-shaped set of tables, you can talk to somebody discreetly next to you. That's pretty easy, not to have to be heard by everyone else. So it's as if John and Jesus are having this dialogue of their own in the midst of that meal. Now here's what you may not know. Jesus is obviously the host of the meal. But by what's recorded, we get the understanding that Judas is one of those reclining right next to Jesus. In fact, in the place of highest honor. John is on his other side in the place of second highest honor. So notice on one side of Jesus is John the divine. On the other side is Judas the devil. On one side is, is John, the seer of the book of Revelation. On the other side is Judas, the son of perdition, the one doomed for destruction, as John will later tell us. That's how it is throughout the gospel of John, in fact, the entire Bible. Jesus is the one who brings great love, but he is also the one that divides. You've got to decide which side are you on. You either say, I want to be on the side of Jesus' favor, or I'm going to be on the side of the one who doesn't love Jesus, doesn't trust Jesus, doesn't follow Jesus. Now, because Judas was right next to Jesus, Jesus answered John's question this way. Verse 26, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Jesus is like, okay, here's the clue. Whoever gets this bread, that's the one. Now, here's what you need to know. When Jesus does that, it's not just a casual thing. This is a sign during during the meal of someone who's getting great honor and, and favor. It would be in our culture like, hey, raise a glass to so-and-so. We're, we're so glad you're here. 
in a way during that meal to show special honor. Jesus takes that piece of bread and he gives it to Judas. And it's Jesus' way of saying, I love you, I favor you. You know that they have to look eye to eye in this exchange. Can you imagine Jesus' eyes looking at Judas? And then Judas's eyes looking back at the Savior whom he's soon going to betray. Look at it here as the story keeps going. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. In other words, that was a little bit louder. People overheard it. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or go give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Jesus gave Judas that piece of bread. Do you understand what this is? This is the last chance. Judas, I know what you're about to do. In fact, that Matthew 26 that we looked at just a moment ago that I told you about, it says that each one of the disciples went around and asked, is it I? And when it got to Judas, when he said, is it I? Jesus evidently spoke so softly to him, but he answered Judas's question. He said, yes, it is you. I know you're the one, Judas, but I still love you. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet just before this, I think that might be the pinnacle of Jesus showing love to his friends like nothing else compared to that. But not only is it a supreme act of love to his friends, it's also that to his enemies. Jesus even loved his enemies. And that display of love is only going to be exceeded by what Jesus does on the cross. And we're told that as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. That's frightening. Do you think that Judas just held up this big sign, hey, welcome to Satan? I don't. I think what happens most often, when the devil does his work, he does it hidden. That Satan does his most dangerous work undercover. Now, there are times, certain times, certain places where maybe it's a big show. Maybe it's almost like an exorcist kind of thing. But more so, he likes to work undercover so people don't even know what's going on. Now, Jesus appealed to Judas in two ways. He appealed to him saying, look, I know it's you, Judas. I know your very darkest things. But secondly, he said, I love you. This is my goodness for you. This is a sign of my love and my favor. Judas took it. And with the bread still in his mouth, he goes out and betrays Jesus. Now, Judas is not the only one that Jesus says this to. He looks at every one of us and says, I know you. I know your very darkest secrets. 
Jesus knows things about me that if you were to know, I would be utterly humiliated. But he knows those things about you as well. He knows those things. And he still loves you. He still holds out his hand to you and to me. And he says, here's my salvation at the cross. I came on a rescue mission. I came for you. There will still be some who will say, forget it. I don't want to have anything to do with you, Jesus. But when Jesus says, I know you and I still love you, receive that. Surrender to it. Judas didn't. But let me say this. Judas shows us something very significant that we need more than an example, more than just great teaching. I mean, wouldn't you agree that Jesus is the best example that anyone could ever have? Judas was with him for three years. Isn't Jesus the most wonderful example of anybody who's ever lived? Judas was with him three years, day and night, but it wasn't enough for Judas. Wouldn't you also agree that Judas had the best Bible teaching that anyone could ever have? Man, can you imagine having the Bible taught to you by Jesus? There'd be nothing more amazing than that. But it wasn't enough. And you see, without that fundamental surrender of your life to Jesus and his working his new life in you, you are no better off than Judas. The story continues. When he was gone, when Judas left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man, that's his title for himself, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Look, I, I don't believe that Jesus said as soon as Judas left, hey, now that the trash has left the room, God's going to get glorified. No. It was now that Judas has left to go get the guards to come and arrest me. That it's all been set in motion. There's no turning back. What lay ahead for Jesus? An arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. A series of trials and beatings. He's going to be condemned and crucified on a cross. What else lay ahead for Jesus? Easter Sunday where he is going to defeat the grave and all of that work is set in motion. Jesus says, now the Son of Man is what? Humiliated? No. Glorified. <laughs> Jesus, I, I think you're mistaken. It's not going to go that well for you, Jesus. They're going to take you to a cross, and on the way, they're going to spit at you and, and whip you. They're going to put you on a cross with railroad spikes through your wrists and your ankles. And then you're going to hang on that cross in agony and your worst enemies are going to mock you and laugh at you. Jesus says, I know. And I'm going to be glorified in that. How could he call that such a thing? Because the cross perfectly makes known the heart of Jesus the heart of Jesus, which is love and sacrifice and giving. It's as if Jesus is saying, if my cross makes the world known of my heart for them, that's glory. 
My children, he continues, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm with you just a little while longer, and then I'm going away. You know, it's like Jesus set off two explosions of that Passover meal that night. The first one is when they were sitting around the table, and he said, one of you is going to betray me. That's a hard thing to hear. I think that would put a damper on our Thanksgiving dinner together, don't you think? And then the other explosion we just heard in verse 33, Jesus tells them very clearly, I'm not going to be around much longer. In a a sense, what the disciples heard was, I'm abandoning you. It's not what Jesus said, but that's what they heard. I'm abandoning you, disciples. I'm leaving. Jesus, we still have more training to be done. Jesus, we haven't had your coronation ceremony yet to be king over us. Jesus, there's so much more work to be done. Jesus says, I'm leaving. And then he's going to spend the bulk of chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 helping them understand what it means when he leaves and how they can prepare for it. And the first thing he wants them to do is that he gives them a new commandment. He says, look here in verses 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's saying, man, I'm leaving you. I'm going away. You guys will carry on the work. Number one on the list, first in priority, is love one another. Have you ever read where the disciples kind of struggled with each other, especially when it comes to like who's go- who of us is going to be like in first place? What held them together was Jesus when he was in their midst. What's it going to be like when he's gone? Jesus said, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to give you new hearts. And you're going to use those to love one another. And Jesus puts a qualifier on it. Love one another as I have loved you. Well, the command to love isn't new, but the extent of that love is new. Love your neighbor as yourself, that was even in the Old Testament. But you know what Jesus said? He said, basically, forget about loving your neighbor as yourself. You should love one another as I love you. Jesus has loved me more than I can love me. Jesus gives us a whole new example of love. It's his love for us. I don't know about you, but I hear that and I think, how? How can I possibly measure up to that standard? How can I possibly love someone else the way Jesus loves me? I'll tell you how we can do it. Because Jesus lives within us. We can only love as Jesus loved as Jesus lives within us. If he lives within us, then we can love as he loved. And if you are born again by God's spirit, you have a new life. And that new life is patterned after Jesus. But then there's kind of a high price in this. Look at verse 35 again. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Jesus gives a measuring stick to the entire world. You're like, hey, everybody, 
this is how you can tell if they're my disciples. It's whether or not they love one another. Really, Jesus? I know you measure me by that, but the world gets to measure me by that as well. And you know, as soon as I said that, there's somebody that came to mind for you. There is a brother or sister in Christ that you're like, man, I got to like them. I'm not going to name any names. But you know who that person is for you. What about them? Okay, let me get right to the point and tell you what to do. You ready? You start by praying for them. And the prayer cannot be, okay, God, get him. If you pray for someone, especially a brother or sister in Christ, God will begin to bring change. First, in your heart, my heart. Why does that matter? Because you're bringing the person before the Lord. And if I bring that person before the Lord, my heart is changing for them. And then the Lord has an opportunity to change their heart as well. To finish our text for the day. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter can't stand the idea that Jesus is going somewhere that he can't follow. Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. No, Peter, you can't follow me now. You will later. What he meant by that is you'll follow me to death later, not now. No, Jesus, you don't know how devoted I am to you. And what does Jesus say to that? Peter, before daylight, you will deny me three times. When Peter said, no way will I deny you, do you think Peter meant that? I do. You see, here's the problem. He meant it in the moment. But he didn't appreciate his own weakness. That's how it works for us. Peter could never die for Jesus until Jesus first died for him. And that's how it is for us. We can never lay down our lives for anyone, Jesus nor any of his people, until we receive the life that Jesus laid down for us. I believe Jesus wants us to have a sacrificial life of, of service to his people and to a needy world in Jesus' name. Do you believe that? I believe that God wants to use you to make a difference in the lives of his people and the lives of a world around us. There are things that we have to do, but let me tell you how it begins. It begins with receiving the life that he has laid down for you. It begins by acknowledging, Jesus, I need you. I want you to come into my life. I can't do this on my own. I mess it up. And the sin is, is too great. 
There's no way I can earn it. I can't pay it. I can't do enough good. The only way is through the cross of Jesus Christ. You receive what he has done. And we need that every day. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.